Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Season 3, Episode 2 Independence Day 10 Katanga secedes and the Cold War comes to Africa. Last time, we saw the events that happened in just the first nine days after independence. So many changes in such a short time. At the austere formal ceremonies commencing the handover of power, the Belgian king espoused the achievements of Leopold II and could certainly be accused of insensitivity. But for the Congolese, and to most people's surprise, the new Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba also said his piece. He took the opportunity to articulate the hurt and suffering the Congolese peoples had endured to the world. There was shock and awe in equal measure as he voiced the rage of years of oppression, with many in the new Parliament engaged in rapturous applause thereafter. And after the talking the celebrations ensued, the Congolese politicians settled into running the embryonic country, giving themselves pay rises and promotions. The whole country was rejoicing, well, except the force publique, that unique blend of police force and army. The force publique had played its part in the festivities by marching as requested, but in reality their world had not changed. They still took orders from Belgian officers and overall command rested with General Janssens, who literally wrote, before independence equals after independence, on a blackboard, to make it emphatic that they could not expect any changes. On the 5th of July, just five days into the new country's life, the force publique mutinied, and they took much of the population with them. The soldiers largely achieved their aims. The European officer cadre was sacked and replaced with new Congolese leaders. The former sergeant Joseph Mobutu was placed second in command as colonel and chief of staff. And in a display of just how much things had changed, the force publique was now renamed the Army Nationale Congolaise, or ANC for short. But despite these changes, and Lumumba and Kasavuba's best efforts, the rioting continued. Attacks on the European population escalated. Thousands fled in horror. And as they arrived in safer spaces, they told their stories. Shocked at the suffering and abuse, Belgium opinion turned as to how much they should be involved in the Congo. Added to this, the ANC took over the airport in Kinshasa, preventing people leaving via the traditional air routes. In the face of this trauma and the outrage in its population, Belgium decided that military intervention was unavoidable. It was going to protect its citizens. Belgium's response was to mobilise 1,800 additional troops to supplement the forces already in the Congo. These included the independent paracommando units and paratroopers, which were flown in immediately. The military force also included an air force, including antiquated but versatile Harvard fighter bombers and C-57s, or Dakotas, and C-119 transport planes. The Navy too was called into action with a small flotilla of minesweepers on the Atlantic coast. These boats were to be involved in one of the first and consequential actions. On July the 10th, Belgium launched the seaborne operation Mangrove. Three Algerine-class minesweepers with 102mm guns and 40mm anti-aircraft Beaufort guns were to transport two infantry regiments in the retaking of Matadi. Matadi is the Atlantic deepwater port so crucial to linking the Congo to the ocean and the outside world, as we have seen back in Series 2. 
Many years ago, Henry Morton Stanley had been part of the team that lost many lives linking this port to the river by the building of a railway. This gives us some idea as to the importance of the town. Operation Mangrove started with an amphibious assault by one of the Belgian regiments, but the ANC were expecting them. As they landed, the ANC laid down a bombardment of their own. One of the ships was hit and severely damaged, and the gas terminal was set ablaze. This terminal was the Congo's main gas supply for the whole country, and it was now out of action. Already the country's infrastructure was being destroyed. But the naval bombardment continued. Under the shelling, the ANC were able to maintain communications and requested support. The ANC regiments in the Thielsville base at Camp Hardy responded and mobilised, but air attacks by the Belgium Air Force prevented them from reaching the fighting. But crucially, this small conflict was now extended geographically. By nightfall, the Belgium attack was over. The Belgians could not take the town and they retreated to their boats as the attack came to a halt. They re-embarked to return to Boma. But this was a turning point. The Congolese had now defeated a Belgian attack. Buoyed at the victory, the ANC troops spread the word, inciting conflict beyond the military confrontation. In messages sent to military and civilian radio networks, revenge was incited on any Europeans still there. This was no message that all Congolese, wherever they be from, would be able to walk tall and without fear in their hearts. This was a purge. Dignity was to be let go at the expense of revenge and violence. In towns across the northern Congo, civilians were beaten and assaulted at airports as they waited for evacuation. Only with Mobutu's personal intervention were these rampages quashed, again showing the efforts of the Congolese leadership to quell these rebellions. But for Belgium, the die was cast. There were around 112,000 Westerners living in the Congo, including 89,000 Belgians. The Belgian government and the electorate would not watch its people being treated like this. Their first mission was to save lives and then to stabilise the country. Once the evacuation was complete, the military was then to remove the arms from the ANC and reinstate the European officers. They had no concerns as to the sovereignty of the new country as the interventions escalated. Focusing on the plight of their people, and too involved to recognise how triggering the effects the Matadi assault was, they became committed to a military exercise to safeguard lives. Lumamba was aghast. This was a direct affront to Congo sovereignty. In many ways he was right, as Belgium still felt that they had a political role to play in the new Congo, and that it would be able to mould the country to its own benefits. But right now this was off the table. Diplomatic relations between the Congo and their former colonial rulers were ended. Any thoughts of mutual development as the two countries diverged was over. In just ten days, the relationship violently came to an end. In Katanga, its leader Moise Shombe watched on with great interest. Katanga too was starting to become embroiled in the turmoil. On the 8th of July, the ANC threatened their European officers, which was followed by citizens stopping a train of European refugees trying to escape the Congo to Rhodesia. On the 10th, the day of the Matadi raid, ANC troops mutinied in the provincial capital, Elizabethville. Seven people were killed, including the Italian consul. As we have seen elsewhere, that dissent spread and riots broke out in the Shinkalobwe mines. The famous mines which sourced the uranium used in the World War II atom bombs. These riots were only stopped when a company of Belgian paratroopers aggressively restored control. Before this unrest, Chambay had already asked Rhodesia and Belgium to send troops to help settle the situation, 
but after these elections, on the 11th of July, he let his Katangan heritage come to the fore. Just 11 days after independence of the new Republic of the Congo, he declared formal independence for the whole Katangan province. He wanted to remove himself and his territory from the newly formed Republic. There is some historical context beyond opportunism. The Lunda and Shombe were never aligned with the Pan-African nationalism of Lumumba's MNCL, and they certainly had no ties to Kasavubu's Bakongo loyalties and the Abaco party. The Kingdom of the Congo near the Atlantic coast was far from the Central African Lunda Hartsland. Support for a Katanga-centric party was starkly reflected in the 1959 election results, where Shombe's Konakat party won an overwhelming victory but in southern Katanga alone. Konakat's main premise was that the wealth of Katanga would be for all authentic Katangese, i.e. not Kishasa and not the wider country. Supporting this sentiment was Shombe's powerful interior minister, Godfried Monongo, who was actually Msiri's grandson. As you may recall, Msiri was the last African leader in the lands that became the Congo, and he was deposed at the end of the 19th century by the Captain Stairs exhibition. See Season 1, Chapter 13 of this podcast, if you want to know more. Umsiri was the despotic ruler of the wealthy copper mines before Leopold annexed the region into his colony. Manungo apparently shared the ruthlessness of his forebears. He has been put forward as the more hard line of the two in the Katangan secession. As an aristocrat of the Bayeki tribe, Manungo had been the driving force behind the Konakat party and always felt that Shombe was his subordinate. As we saw prior to independence, the loyalties to the historical kingdoms of pre-colonial times was far from over. But other interests were also at play. As the main region of mineral wealth, the international community were keeping a very close eye. Geographically, much of the region protrudes into today's Zimbabwe, and so it was with the infrastructure. The region had links to Rhodesia and the economic powerhouse of South Africa, in a very different direction to the capital near the Atlantic. The scholar-activist Georges Nzongola Natalia writes that the Konakat party was actually a front for the European settler party, the Union Katangese, so that they could retain power whilst appeasing the international direction of decolonialism. Shombe did campaign for whites to receive the vote, but this was outright rejected by the other Congolese parties. He also campaigned for each province to retain a greater share of the wealth it generated, which was also dismissed by the less wealthy areas. In practice, this did lead to a greater policy alignment between himself and the ambitions of the European and Southern African settlers. The day after the proclamation of Katangan independence, Colonel Champion mobilised all Belgian citizens between the ages of 25 and 45 to restore the Katangan economy. Former force public soldiers were also recruited into what became known as the Katangese Gendarmerie. Chillingly, only those considered authentic Katangese were recruited, whilst others were disarmed. The majority of these recruited were members of the Lunda peoples. Belgian authorities also placed their forces at the hands of Shombe to protect all persons and goods and ordered refugees to return to the towns. Whilst the Belgian government did not support the secession officially, its actions showed that it was in favour of Shombe's rule and assisted him to create a stabilised state. Katanga was preparing to militarily support its political aims. Presidents Kasavubu and Prime Minister Lumumba were apoplectic with rage. Lest we forget, they were the democratically elected heads of government, 
and Lumumba had campaigned of a united Congo within a Pan-African movement, but they had no military to use themselves. All of their efforts with the military were to appease them and prevent them from rioting and harming European settlers. So they turned to the United Nations. They sought their help in removing the Belgians and treacherous Congolese by any means necessary. The day after the secession, on the 12th of July, they sent a telegram to the UN. The government of the Republic of the Congo requests UN organisation urgently to send military assistance. Our request, justified by a detachment of Belgian troops from motherland to Congo, in violation of Treaty of Friendship, signed between Belgium and Republic of Congo this June the 29th. According to terms of treaty, bound him troops only to intervene at explicit request of Congo government. That request never formulated by government of Republic of Congo. Consider unsolicited Belgian operations as act of aggression against our country. True cause of most upheavals are colonial provocations. Accuse Belgian government of detailed preparation of Katangan secession to retain grip on our country. The government supported by Congolese people refuses to submit to fate accompli posed by conspiracy by Belgian imperialists and small groups of Katanga and leaders. Insist emphatically on extreme urgency of sending United Nations troops to Congo. Signed, President Joseph Kasavubu and Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba. The United Nations, or the UN, responded immediately. That same evening, the Swedish Secretary-General, Dag Hammarskjöld, called an emergency meeting in New York. Notably, the Soviet Union called for total compliance with the request for military support, although this view was opposed by many, under the conclusion that other members were hesitant to rebuke Belgium. The final resolution called for Belgium to remove all military forces to the Congo. Peacekeeping forces would also be sent under the Operation des Nations Unies au Congo, or ONUC. The operation was planned immediately, and thousands of troops were organised to be sent, at that point the largest UN force ever assembled. On the 13th of July, Kasavubu and Lumumba considered this response. It was not what they wanted. What they had really hoped for was for a United Nations force that would invade Katanga and fight the Belgian and secessionist Katangan forces. But Hammarskjöld was not willing to put UN troops under Congolese control. The countries contributing the troops also had no appetite for this internal conflict, so this was a pragmatic response. I suspect, driven by frustration, the next day the Congolese President and Prime Minister jointly poked the global hornet's nest. They sent a telegram to the Soviet Union. They had appeared the most supportive of direct military intervention at the Security Council meeting, and by sheer coincidence they were also the Cold War rival to the US. They asked whether Moscow, and I quote, could be induced to request intervention by Soviet Union if Western Camp does not terminate act of aggression against sovereignty of the Republic of the Congo. National Congolese territory currently occupied by Belgian troops and the lives of the President of the Republic and the Prime Minister are in danger. This telegram changed things irrevocably. The telegram placed the Congo in the heart of the Cold War. Previously Asia was the hotbed manifested in the Korean War, but this one telegram pulled the conflict straight into Africa. As African countries found themselves free from colonialism, they became embroiled in the war between the two victors of World War II, the USA and the USSR. Just as in 1885, when the Congo initiated the meeting of the European superpowers of the day, the Congo now initiated the globalisation of the Cold War.
Some look at this telegram as naive, others as a display of putting Congo first above all else. But I think Van Vreybuck hits the nail on the head. These two men, never having held any real possessions of responsibility before in their lives, were faced with running a country which was disintegrating before their very eyes. The last lines reveal that they considered themselves in mortal danger. They were simply overwhelmed. Global Power, of course, cared little for these men as individuals unless they were useful. Khrushchev was Premier of the Soviet Union and had seen his country lose millions in the war with Nazi Germany. On the other hand, President Eisenhower of the USA had been Supreme Allied Commander of the European and North African theatres during World War II. These were not men who were going to react rashly under pressure. Premier Khrushchev could not believe his luck. Even though, again, quoting directly, he knew Lumumba was no more a communist than he himself was a Catholic. He replied as positively as he could, stating how if the imperialist aggression continued, he would take resolute measures. The Soviet Union's demand was clear. Hands off the Congo. This enthusiastic Soviet reaction spurred the UN to take action even faster. On the 15th of July, only two days after the 4am New York resolution, Moroccan and Ghanaian troops arrived, followed in the next two weeks by troops from Ethiopia, Guinea, Ireland, Liberia, Mali, Morocco, Sudan, Sweden and Tunisia. In total, 10,000 UN troops arrived, flown in primarily by the US Air Force. As a counterpoint to this, the USSR sent nine Aleutian transport planes, loaded with food, trucks and weapons. Much as the Congolese wanted to be free from foreign influence, it now housed more foreign forces than ever before. Fortunately, in the midst of all of this, calm heads did prevail. Hammarskjöld was aware that this could escalate militarily, and the Congo could soon be part of a much wider conflict. He was never going to allow UN forces to be on the offensive. They would only ever be peacekeepers. But the voice that really mattered was the US. Lumumba knew that the US was able to turn the conflict too, and unilaterally travelled there at the end of July to seek help. But his trip was disastrous. His first trip was to the UN. There he was passionate in his beliefs and forthright in his demands, but he was dismissed by the UN as being wholly unrealistic in his requests, both for military support and in the expectation of immediate action. As a first blow for negotiations with the US government, President Eisenhower refused to see him as he had not made an appointment, but meetings were set up with other officials. He met the US Under Secretary of State, who described him as irrational and almost psychotic. During these meetings, Lumumba would look to the ceiling and deliver a fervent sermon on a disconnected subject which was impossible to follow. He was dismissed and described as almost messianic in nature and impossible to deal with. His request for a blonde call girl, which was arranged by the CIA, did not enhance his reputation. During all of this, the Belgian military continued its evacuation operations. Between the Matadi assault and the end of July, Belgian paracommandos and paratroopers conducted seven parachute assaults, three short-term aircraft assault operations, and six airborne invasions. All of these were supported by Harvard attack aircraft, which strafed any opposition forces. But these efforts were not in vain. Just under 35,000 civilians were evacuated by the Belgian Air Force, and a further 2,000 refugees were escorted south to northern Rhodesia. These people were safe, and Belgium felt that it had done what it needed to do. 
Whilst these Belgian forces effectively operated at will, Katanga continued establishing itself as a separate state. But other regions looked at Katanga's move. In South Kasai, in the central south of the country, the animosity between the Lulua and the Luba, which we explored at the end of Season 2, had not subsided. In the diamond mines at Bakwanga, Lulua were rampaging, attacking and killing Luba men, women and children. Albert Kalonji, leader of the Luba MNCK party, implored Lumumba for help. They had been political allies in the 1950s, but their MNC party had split when they could not reconcile the differences between Kalonji's Federalist and Lumumba's Centralist ideals. But no help from the Congo government came. Kalonji already viewed Lumumba's erraticism as the reason for the breakdown in the country, and had lobbied the US and Belgium for funds to overthrow him, but to no avail. But seeing the inability of the Prime Minister to assist and stop the conflict in his own lands, Kalonji, perhaps influenced by the events in Katanga, decided on a new direction. On the 8th of August he met with other members of the Luba people and declared autonomy for the South Kasai. This was not full independence as Shombe had declared for Katanga. This was a more measured local control. He still expected the Republic of the Congo to exist and MNCK elected representatives still attended what he perceived as a federalist central parliament. But he wanted more ability to ensure stability and crucially he had the funding to do so. Discreetly, and without any public declarations, the huge company Société Internationale Forestière et Minière du Congo for Minière, started to allocate its tax revenues to Kalonji and the autonomous province. This company had its origins in the times of Leopold funded by American backers. They clearly had little faith in the survival of the wider Congolese country. The next day, on the 9th of August, the UN Security Council called on Belgium to remove all troops. This doesn't appear to have been at all contentious. In reality, the Belgian government did not want to continue its colonial project for the late 1950s, as we have seen. So the Belgian troops left, largely through airlifts by the Belgian Air Force and Sabina, but also with the support of the US Air Force yet again. By the end of August, only 600 Belgian troops remained. Independence had cost Belgium the two Central African military bases it had hoped to retain, and the reality of future relations with the Congo looked sour but Lumamba was still raging. His eye was no longer directed at the Belgian military forces, but at Katanga and Kasai, who were not willing to take instruction from the capital. He consistently barraged the UN to militarily invade Katanga, and now the South Kasai, reacting in fury when they reiterated their peacekeeping mandate. Brian Urquhart, a senior UN official, stated that any meetings with Lumamba quickly degenerated into pleas for helps, threats and ultimatums. Hammerskold himself saw Lumumba as a threat to peace and the security of his forces, and his rages were even starting to alienate the Catholic Church and other Congolese politicians. He was running out of options, and managing to alienate the institutions and people who had the means to help. The UN wanted an end to this situation as discreetly as possible. Lumumba had already been dismissed as impossible to deal with, but his manner so exacerbated the UN that they were considering pulling out. The final straw for the US came on August the 15th, when Lumumba again directly asked the USSR for military aid to bring Katanga and the South Kasai back into the fold. The US did not want to see the UN withdraw, and a Soviet military presence in the Congo, rich as it was in minerals. They knew the Soviet history of occupation, 
and in reality there would have been nothing Lumumba could have done to stop it. Ultimately, the US and President Eisenhower had come to see Lumumba as a liability. At best, he could not manage the country out of crisis, but at worst, he would invite communism to the heart of Africa, and it would become a puppet communist state. In the diction of the Cold War, it was decided Lumumba was an issue to be resolved, which was a euphemism for assassinated. He was seen as, and I quote, a mad dog and a problem that needed to be dealt with. It's been an eventful few weeks after independence, that's for sure, and there is still no real sight of stability. Widespread attacks on non-Congolese had resulted in nearly 40,000 refugees leaving the country, amongst whom were the very people with the experience of managing the administration. Katanga and South Kasai had proclaimed their independence to varying degrees, and the UN now had 10,000 soldiers in the country. Barajan was leaving militarily, but there was no sense that the new Congolese government was able to achieve any sense of control. Ominously, Prime Minister Lumumba was now seen as part of the problem, but as yet, there was no sight of how the situation would unfurl, and who would bring order back. Well, not overtly, at least. The United States started their foreign intelligence service in Africa in the 1940s, and they were still there. They did have some ideas about the future, and had already started to cultivate a few individuals as people who could help. But this we will see next time. The first six weeks after independence have been tumultuous to say the least. Next time we shall see how this continues. So until then, as ever, goodbye and safe travels. <laughs>